Before we continue, a wee personal story about me. When I was 23, I had a cancer scare in my cervix, but because I lived in Scotland, I was able to be screened and have treatment, which caught it early and saved my life. What brought this back was listening to an episode of The Case Files, presented by my former TV news colleague, Kate Gerbeau. In it, she tells the story of Emma Swain, a 22-year-old English girl who wasn't as lucky as me. The screening age is higher in England, and despite 30 visits to her GP with severe symptoms, it took six months for her to finally have a smear test, and by then, it was too late. Her story is heartbreaking and well worth a listen. But that's just one of the stories in The Case Files, which digs deep into astonishing legal cases of medical negligence, murder, terror attacks and more. So while you're waiting for the next episode of The Storyteller Violent Delights, why not give it a go? You won't be disappointed. Previously on The Storyteller Violent Delights, four of Scotland's legal heavyweights made their dramatic speeches. Is Mrs Garvey the real brain behind this crime? There was no doubt who played the part of Lady Macbeth. Ladies and gentlemen, you wouldn't drown a kitten on such evidence. Lady Macbeth, Lady Bountiful or Lady Chatterley? Which character would the jury believe best represented Sheila Garvey? I'm Isla Traquair and this is the storyteller Violent Delights, a true story of love which began as a fairy tale but ended in a nightmare. From castles to a courtroom, this story rocked Scotland like no other. It's a crime so historic, only a few characters are alive to tell the tale. And I'm tracking them down for what might be the last chance to discover the truth behind the headlines and who killed Maxwell Garvey and why. Three a.m. on December the second, nineteen sixty-eight. In unprecedented scenes, a crowd had already gathered six hours before the doors of the High Court in Aberdeen would open for the climactic day of the trial of the century. They braved the rain and cold Scottish temperatures, desperate for a seat in the public benches, to discover the fates of Sheila Garvey, her lover Brian Tevendale, and his former workmate Alan Peters. All three were accused of murdering prominent farmer 35-year-old Maxwell Garvey six months earlier. With a packed courtroom, the trap door opened and the three flanked by police officers entered the dock. The trumpet fanfare signalled the entrance of stern Lord Thompson, who was about to address the jury on points of law. They were one person down, as a woman had taken ill earlier in the trial and had been excused. Now only 14 would have to decide their fates on a majority of at least eight to six. The very thing that had brought so much attention to this case, the thing that had filled newspapers and seats in court, was precisely what the judge was now urging them to ignore. You must try, and I emphasize this because I know how difficult it is in practice to exclude from your deliberations all considerations based upon sympathy and emotion. You have heard a great deal of evidence relating to the peculiarities of sexual behavior and sexual perversion. 
It has been said that Maxwell Garvey was a sexual pervert and one who tried to force his perversion on his wife. It is just as wrong in our law to kill such a man as to kill a man who is sexually normal and whose morals are beyond reproach. There has been a picture painted here of a quartet who had a pattern of sexual relationships and activity you might regard as nauseating and falling below even the conventional standards of the so-called permissive society. But these matters are wholly irrelevant unless, and only insofar as from that pattern or picture, you think you can fairly draw the inference as to the state of mind of the accused in the crucial period on the night of the 14th, 15th, in relation to the killing of Maxwell Garvey. The question for you is not whether the people concerned are sexually normal or sexually abnormal. It is not whether the persons concerned are moral, immoral, or amoral. The Crown must prove its case against each of the accused, and the three do not stand or fall together. You might suppose that if someone was killed by a gun, only the person whose fingers squeezed the trigger was responsible for the killing. But that, in fact, is not the law. If two or more people are engaged in a plan or plot or enterprise, knowing that the purpose is to kill someone, and in pursuance of that plot, someone is killed, then each who enters into the plot, plan, or enterprise are responsible in the law for the killing, regardless of which of them does the actual killing. It matters not whose hand struck the fatal blow. So far as the Crown case is concerned, its case against two depends wholly upon acting in concert. Lord Thompson was direct with his thoughts on Brian Tevendale's statement to police that it could not possibly be accepted with any degree of accuracy or reliability. On the unusual defence of coercion by Alan Peters, he directed them that based on the evidence they must disregard it. His statement to police was a confession of guilt and not a declaration of innocence. However, he said it was up to the jury to decide how much of his evidence from the witness box they would accept. Then he dealt with Sheila Garvey, and the fact it boiled down to them either believing Alan Peters' version that she had let them in and told them when Maxwell Garvey was asleep, or her version that she was asleep and had been woken by Tevendale entering the bedroom. Without any question of doubt, if she acted that night in the way Peters said she acted, she was unquestionably party to the enterprise, and as such, guilty. In just over an hour, he had completed the final process of the trial before instructing the jury to retire to consider its verdict. Moments after he and the jury left the room, a loud booing was heard from the public gallery. The reason was Trudy Burst getting up to talk to her mother, a mother who'd witnessed two of her children's private lives being dragged through the court and the media. One was free but being hounded every time she and her husband Fred Burst stepped outside the courtroom. The other was in handcuffs in the dock. 
A court officer intervened and silenced the hecklers, reminding them that this was a court of law. Meanwhile, beneath the trapdoor in the cells, young police constable Evis Ritchie, smartly dressed in her uniform and white gloves, was preparing herself for potentially a long wait. But barely 60 minutes later, she was walking back up the 16 steps behind Sheila Garvey, still in her pale blue suit she'd been wearing the whole trial, to take their seats in the dock for the final time. In that moment where her fate was decided, you know, for you personally, what was that like? Quite nerve-wracking, really. Quite nerve-wracking. It was, wow, such an experience that I thought, oh, this is bizarre, really, you know, what was happening. It's just totally bizarre. Um, and I was so intent on doing all the right things that, um, yeah, it, it was just the seriousness of the whole thing. You know, the seriousness, the tensity in the court, the, what was the verdict going to be? What was the sentence going to be? If there was to be a sentence, if she was to be found guilty, because at that time she was still on remand, she hadn't been found guilty. Yeah, your heart must have been in your mouth at that point. A little bit. <laughs> did, did you feel sorry for her? Um, I suppose... I suppose I've got to say I did a little bit because of the type of person she was. Because I kept thinking, I mean, why, why are you here? You don't strike me as being... A person who would be guilty of murder. Um, and I couldn't help thinking that perhaps she was there because of the circumstances leading up to things. I think as well that, you know, because he was Max Garvey and the most eligible bachelor, wealthy, I mean, you know how some of these guys, they just get carried away with the whole thing. And this happens as a result. I think she married when she was quite young. I think she was about 18. And this had probably been a much more experienced man. And although things had been probably quite happy initially, things must have happened to change that because uh, he had various sexual perversions. And... Had this been too much for Sheila Garvey? Could she not handle this? Did she think, well, this is just, this is not right? And uh, when she got involved with Tiefendale came, came on the scene, um, was this an escape for her? She had three children. She was a mother, she had three children. And his demands were too great on her and that she was tempted to go in another direction. It was a love story gone wrong. That's a good way of putting it, Isla. A love story gone wrong. Despite her nerves, Evis remembers clearly how she felt and the electric atmosphere in court. The atmosphere was very tense, as you can imagine. Dramatic. Obviously, that you could hear whispers in the court, but... Um, it was really 
very, very tense. And then again, I was, I was totally focused on Sheila Garvey. I was a side eye just watching just how she was, uh, how she was and thinking to myself, well, you know, she's been so quiet and just no problem at all to escort. But then I wasn't sure how she might react when she did actually hear the verdict. The judge asks the foreman of the jury to stand up, asks him if the jury have reached a verdict and what is your verdict? And then he would turn and look towards the accused and ask them to stand up. And then the verdict is read out. The moment of the verdicts being delivered is perhaps best remembered through Sheila in an extract from her memoir, Marriage to Murder. The court gasped in astonishment when the verdict in the case of Alan Peters was announced. Not proven. They had chosen to believe him rather than me. I waited, trembling. I knew what the jury foreman would say next. The verdict in my case was indeed guilty by a majority verdict. Keeping a close eye, Evis recalls Sheila's hands gripping the bench to steady herself. When she stood up, she was holding on to the, the front of, you know, the bench and that, and just looking ahead. And, um, and then the verdict was read out. And to the best of my recollection, she just kind of dropped her head. Not down, but she just dropped her head. Lowered her, lowered her head a little. And that was it. Did you take that as a moment of defeat? I wondered if, um, if she was truly expecting that or if there was still a glimmer of hope that she might not be found guilty. I mean, the, the accused never knows until they're actually the verdict is read. And um, I think maybe she still had a glimmer of hope. While the first two verdicts may have come as a shock, the third did not. In the case of Brian, the verdict was unanimously guilty. I have no idea how I managed to walk down the 16 steps from the dock. Mr Dowdo followed me, the tears streaming down his face. I didn't cry. I had to concentrate on making my legs work. After the verdict was, was read, uh, the trap door would have opened and we would have just gone back downstairs again and remained there. I think we had decided that, uh, or been advised, um, to remain there 
perhaps for a little while because there was a lot of activity outside with the, the cameras and you can imagine there was a huge buzz uh, with all this going on and uh, so we just we remained downstairs for a while and then well I mean we made sure that Sheila Garvey was was okay you know we, it was it's a bit difficult to describe but obviously it was a very very tense time and I mean this verdict actually determined the next few years of her life and she had to take this in and had she thought about this before but she was, I mean, she, my recollection is that she was really quite, quite calm, but I can't imagine. I think she would have been maybe shedding a few tears. Did you say anything to her? Well, just small talk. I mean, obviously nothing to do with the case. Just small talk. Are you okay? You know, do you want to have a seat for a while? Or, you know, that sort of thing just made sure she was okay. By the time Brian and Sheila were put into their holding cells beneath the trap door, Alan Peters was halfway down the main street in Aberdeen city centre. Specific to Scottish law, the not proven verdict has the outcome of immediate acquittal while not entirely freeing someone of the accusation. Retired officer Alistair Smith saw him in his first moments of freedom which he recalled were far from joyous. I can remember seeing him walking up Union Street, a rather desolate man, but free. Meanwhile, crowds of the press and public awaited the departure of the handcuffed lovers. The bodies crushed together, spilling off the pavement and onto the road. Despite Evis's hopes of the crowds diminishing, it became apparent there was no limit to the time they were willing to wait. We asked her, you know, we said, are you ready to go? Are you sure you're okay? Yes. Um, then covered her. Because we knew that everybody wanted a picture of uh, Sheila Garvey. So we covered her and uh, took her up the back steps and um, into the van that was waiting and uh, back over to Craig and she's prison. Brian and Sheila were given life sentences. The exact time they'd spend behind bars was at this point unknown. Their first night was in the same prison in Aberdeen, before Sheila was transferred to a special women's facility near Glasgow. Alan Peters walked out a free man. Brian and I were taken from the back entrance into a police van. We said nothing to each other during the journey back to Craig Inches. We were both reeling with shock. When we arrived inside the prison gates, I remember we were allowed a farewell kiss. Brian was handcuffed. By this point, the outcome of the trial had started spreading before the newspapers had even gone to print. Everyone had an opinion, and not all were shocked with the guilty verdict of Sheila. Well, I really wasn't. Uh, 
I was aware of the statement that she had made about being in a, in a room adjacent to their bedroom and hearing this thumping noise. Uh, I don't know what your impression is, but if you uh, had left your husband half drunk or uh, under the influence of drugs in his, in his bed and heard the thumping noises and she may have heard the report of gun, but I'm doubtful. Uh, I would have thought she was involved. You know, the circumstantial evidence suggested that she was very much involved, but whether to the extent of murdering her husband, I really don't know. Alistair Smith's colleague Ian Gordon said the finger pointing was a common defence tactic designed at getting them all off although he did believe Alan Peters was under Tevendale's control. It's, it's like any of these models when you've got um, um, quite a few accused persons, then you can uh, they start blaming one another. And I think it's just sort of human nature. They do that just to get themselves off. And uh, I wasn't surprised that they were blaming one another, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I think they were all trying to save their own skin. Um, and I think Perhaps the uh, strength of evidence was there to incorporate uh, certainly two of them. And uh, I think that's why Alan Peters um, got off, because he wasn't involved in the uh, sordid details that went before. He was certainly influenced by Brian Tevenil, undoubtedly. Um, they both worked together as mechanics, and uh, from the colleagues that they worked with at... Um, they said that uh, Brian Tevendale had uh, quite an influence over Alan Peters. If Tevendale was controlling Peters, was he also controlling Sheila? Or was she the one influencing him? Retired journalist Stuart McCartney believed they were an odd match. I only saw him as a big guy. I saw him in a dock at the High Court. And, I mean, and then you look at him and you look at her and you say, what in the name of Christ, what she doing, getting involved with him? I mean, she was far superior mentally and, and uh, physically and beautifully to him. Far superior. Gordon Hay, who you'll hear in the next episode, was the first to speak to Sheila after her release, said any sympathy for her disappeared due to one particular piece of evidence, regardless if she was the mastermind or not. If there was any lingering sympathy, I think that perhaps was either diminished or completely uh, written out of the script when you know you realise that the three children were in bed so the plot was actually carried out and she was um, stood guard outside their bedroom to make sure they didn't get up or were disturbed by a shotgun going off um, uh, and um, I think any woman would would lose sympathy if they had any for when they knew that fact that you know the father of her children, the children were in the house, and she was holding on to that the uh, the door handle of their bedroom uh, to prevent them uh, coming out of their rooms if they had been disturbed. And now there's no evidence to the to that fact whether they had been disturbed by the ongoings of the night but um, you know she, she was kind of standing there to prevent that happening. 
Retired police officer Ian Gordon felt Sheila's continued relationship with Tevendale after the murder also diminished the sympathy some might have had for her. In my view, um, she wanted to be with Tevendale, which meant that she couldn't be with Max and with him. They had obviously decided that they should dispose of of, uh, Max Garvey and they would have a relationship together because um, the evidence came out that after Max's death in the three-month period, after just about uh, two, three weeks, Tevendale started staying down at West Cairnbeg. And that's what upset Sheila Garvey's mother, Mrs. Watson, because she knew she was spending a lot of time there to help look after the children, and she didn't like this uh, association taking place at West Cairnbeg. Lorna Watson, whose father was in the jury, believes he would have felt sorry for her as an abused woman, but ultimately a man had died. I think that he would have had um, a certain level of sympathy um, for her, um, but I think overall he still would have thought, well, but murder wasn't murder wasn't justified by what had been happening in her life. Um, you know, he had quite strict religious values and and that was still would have been to the fore he would have still thought that this was pretty reprehensible that they actually murdered him and um why could they not should not just go ahead and divorce the man or leave the man or or whatever did it really require something uh, quite as brutal so i i suspect that would have been his view that's not necessarily mine but it certainly was and for the times as well I think it's a very useful exercise to be able to look back on it retrospectively now and see would would the outcome have been any different um, in in the trial if it was held now as opposed to the 1960s um, because obviously you people interpret situations within their context and the context of 1960s values um, so it would be interesting to, to see that if, it, if that could have been reconstructed whether people would have taken a different view or a kinder view or, or whatever I, I think certainly in the past uh, when women go to trial particularly for very serious offences um, it, it's seen as either mad or bad you have to fall into one of the categories and she didn't fall into the mad category so she just had to be labelled as bad um, and, and that's what's happened to many women I think over the years so it would be interesting to see if, if explanations or understanding have broadened at all or or moved on at all, or if we basically are still in the same place as the 1960s. While the jury had made its judgments about the three accused, the press and public had been making their own conclusions about the victim. Gordon Hay says Max had been painted as a pretty dark character. He never had the chance to defend himself in court. So was, was, was the whole story... Absolutely true. Were there bits missed out? Well, doubt, doubtlessly there were. Um, uh, but I suppose, you know, um, there's a lot of tutting at the time. I mean, the North East is a pretty kind of Presbyterian place, or certainly was then. Uh, and, you know, if I kind of was to, to judge anything by, for instance, the, the kind of reaction of some of the women in our family, including my mother, it was a bit of tut tut. Max, oh, you know, because of the, the drinking drugs, obviously went more and more hedonistic, 
and um, that kind of what what he didn't bargain for was the fact that uh, it, uh, the romance that he had um, uh, pushed the two participants into Brian Tevendale and, and Sheila uh, went a wee bit further than uh, he had foreseen and they kind of fell in love. Uh, he tried to break it up uh, and that kind of, you might say in crime novel uh, parlance, signed his own death warrant. It's the type of scenario on which novels have been written. Uh, you know, uh, for many, many years novels have been written. Not, not particularly the Garvey case, but you know, the American whodunits are not that dissimilar in, in, in uh, uh, content than what happened here. Um, so I, I think it would still be a big story. The, the moral attitude to it would be changed, but, you know, it's, it's a middle-class type story, which kind of lifts it above what some people would think would be, uh, you know, the sort of the hoi polloi kind of thing. While every detail in the newspapers was being consumed by the captivated readers the following morning, the story was far from over for Brian and Sheila, who were allowed one last meeting before she was taken to Gateside Prison, nearly 200 miles away. The next day I was told Brian wanted to see me. We were allowed to talk through a glass petition while a police officer watched us from a discreet distance. There was an obvious feeling of resentment between us. Little was said. What could there have been to say anyway? To reflect together on the morass of tangled emotions and contorted motives, to talk about who had done what and why was pointless now. To talk of what was to come. Years and years in prison, separated from everyone and everything we had known and loved would have been like looking together across an endless, barren, desolate wasteland. There was only a glass partition between us, but in our thoughts, we were a thousand miles apart. In the next episode of The Storyteller, Violent Delights, a marriage proposal behind bars, but could their love, which led to murder, endure? There are many different kinds of loving, and sometimes love grows from strange roots. And what happened after their release, a journalist finally comes face to face with the infamous Sheila Garvey. And then, all of a sudden, the door opened and in walked, undoubtedly Sheila. This is the storyteller Violent Delights, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquair. There's more information and photos relating to the case on social media. If you've enjoyed this, then please rate and review on iTunes, as it really helps other people find this story. This is an entirely independent production and any support is gratefully received. 
A huge thank you to Nick J. Tyler, who composed and performed all the music, except the title track, which is Searchlight by Cathedral. And finally, a big thank you to the voice actors, in particular Kate Dickey, who is the voice of Sheila. <laughs>